passage we're going to look at today. We're going to look at, in the series, Hear My Voice, God Speaks About His Fatherhood. And in a few moments, we'll be reading a few verses in Malachi 1, actually, not 6. It wasn't a great week with the PowerPoints. We made a few mistakes. It's Malachi 1, verses 6 and 9. I don't think there are six chapters in Malachi. Um, that's our, yeah, that's how, <laughs> that's how it was. <laughs> um, uh, I wish it was all right. Didn't notice. Good. Um, my personal assistant normally doesn't make mistakes like that. <laughs> no, not six chapters in Malachi, Marion, just embarrassing you. <laughs> but then, again, I can't do it myself, so how, how useless is that? Just before we read it, though, let's, let's say to you a reminder, because I know Steve's spoken about these things very quickly. Malachi, the actual name of uh, the prophet, means my messenger. And uh, we don't know very much about Malachi himself. And it's almost, I would say, deliberate because the clear emphasis of the book is the message, not the messenger. Uh, and the message is all from God. In a rather unusual degree, Malachi as a book, I think it's 47, I think Steve told you this statistic, but it is 47 of the verses are God speaking directly. There's only 55 verses in the book. That is, most of it is 90-something percent is God speaking directly to his people. And Malachi was also the last prophetic message from God before what we call the Old Testament period closed. The next time God brings a direct prophetic word, it's through John the Baptist. And he is very, very quickly followed by the word incarnate, Jesus Christ, God's Son. Hebrews 1 reminds us that God spoke in the past through prophets, but in these last days, he's spoken through his Son, the image of God amongst us, God manifest in the flesh. That is incredible. And Jesus ushered in those, that period called the last days, in inverted commas. And that is often the way the New Testament refers to the age we are in. Jesus started the last day phase and it will finish when Jesus comes back. This is our time and in this time God speaks even more openly and clearly than in any other time because he's been able to. Jesus has come to deal with our sin. We will have a little time to touch that briefly later on. He's come to change us. The Holy Spirit can now come and live in us. We can be born again of the Spirit. We have the Spirit of God in us. We can hear God speak to him. He's, uh, uh, the Holy Spirit says, Abba, Father, in our hearts. We have an intimate relationship with God. He loves to speak to us. The gifts of the Spirit, which many of you will know all about, quite a lot of them are speaking gifts. Prophecy, teaching, evangelism, words of knowledge, words of wisdom. God loves to communicate with his people. And of course, above all, we have the Bible and in its completeness. We have the Old Testament, the Old Covenant one. We've got the New Testament, the New Covenant. Jesus brought in the New Covenant and there's a sense of completeness. We have what God wants to say to us. We have it here, but we also have the now words of God speaking through his spirit. So it's a wonderful, wonderful time to be alive in this era. And we look back at the Old Testament and we learn from it. And that's what we're doing with Malachi because it's, he, he is the same God and the principles are very similar, in very similar indeed. And we are meant to look back at what God said then and through the Holy Spirit, we'll hear what God says to us now. Often their experience was slightly 
limited, a shadow compared to what we enjoy. That would be a Bible sense of looking at it. It's like the shadow, just the shape of the substance that we enjoy through Jesus. And we'll see that's a little bit true of some of the things we're touching today. But their response as God's people, and they were and truly God's people, their response to God is, is, is telling for us. It, it, in one, way, one part of the New Testament says that they're there for our example and for warnings to us about how we walk with God and how we relate to God. And we'll find that as well today as we look at this passage. So with that background, let's read those few verses. Malachi 1 and verse 6. God speaking as so often through this book. A son honours his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honour due me? If I am a master, where is the respect due me, says the Lord Almighty? It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would be he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? Now plead with God to be gracious to us. With such offerings from your hands will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. Now I've read that quickly because I think that doesn't make very good sense, verse 9, in my version. But the New Living Translation, I think, catches the sense of verse 9. So I'm just going to read you that verse again from the, because it's God speaking still. Go ahead, plead with God, be gracious to us, but with such offerings from your hands, will he accept you, says the Lord Almighty. You get more of the sense, you know, you're pleading and praying, oh God, bless us, be gracious to us, but look how you're behaving towards me. So I feel the New Living Translation actually catches that sense better. So God is speaking to his people here in the days of Malachi, 400 plus years before Jesus came. But let's remember that we who are Christians, we are in Christ, and that's what it is to be a Christian. You've put faith in Jesus and you've come into Christ. You're in Christ. We, whoever we are, wherever we come from, men, women, Jew, Gentile, whatever our background, however we've behaved in the past, we become children of God. We're forgiven, we're cleansed, we're restored, we're made children of God, born from above. We'll see a little more of that in a moment. And we also become the people of God, the people who are in Jesus. It's not about race these days, it's about are you in Christ or in Adam? If you're in Christ, you are a child of God and you're one of the people of God, the new covenant people of God. And they are also described as a kingdom of priests. You could pick that up from Peter's letter in the New Testament. It's not that we need priests now. We don't need special people with special clothes and special rituals to, to, to go between us and God. We can all come into the presence of God. We are all priests through Jesus Christ because we share his priesthood. And therefore, we can come boldly into the presence of God and hear from him and receive messages from him and intercede for others to him and have messages for others from him. It's wonderful. Yes. Now, this passage in Malachi is spoken to God's Old Testament people 
and to particularly in these verses, the priests, priests of those people, the priesthood. So it has an application to us as new covenant people of God who are a kingdom of priests. And as we read it, we will feel something of the challenge of what God is saying here. Now, when this prophecy came to Israel about 440 BC, they were in a little bit of a state. They were, they were back in the land, and I think Steve again told you some of this. They, they were back, it was sort of just past the time or around the time of Nehemiah and Ezra, if you know your Old Testament. But although they're back, things are not what they expected. They are a bit, a bit disappointed with how things are working out. They're still under the rule of the Persians. That's the reference to the governor. We'll touch that again in a moment. So they've still got the Persian rule over them. Uh, they have got the city of Jerusalem. They have got a temple to a degree, but it's not as spectacular as they hoped for. And actually, in practical terms, these people are fairly distracted with financial problems. They have financial insecurity. The economy is not doing very well. They also have a general atmosphere of religious skepticism. They've become skeptical and cynical about their religion and about God. And behind that is a personal, fairly intense disappointment, which I've already touched on with God, that things, God hasn't quite delivered what they were hoping for. Now, I hope that little list, which tells you the conditions in which they heard this, rings a few bells for us. Although we're two and a half thousand years later, there's a relevance for us, God's people in a situation of troubled economic times, uncertainty to be honest, the forces in their land are not ones convivial to, to, to their faith, they're, they're the pagan Persians are ruling, we can feel like that as Christians in modern Britain, and, and actually there's probably a fair bit of disappointment in there, that God hasn't quite delivered what we hoped and what we thought. So I think there is a lot of relevance, particularly for Christians in the modern 21st century Britain, and maybe some of us who've been around for a while and had time to go through some highs and lows with God. So as a result of all the situation, these people were really just going through the motions of worshiping God. Now they were still worshiping God, they weren't worshiping idols which was where the low points that, that Israel got to at other times. And they probably were relatively proud of the fact they were still doing the stuff. They were still going to the temple. They were still worshipping Yahweh. They weren't worshipping idols. But their worship was half-hearted. And actually, their relationship with God was pretty poor and pretty cool and distant. And they thought that the problem was all on God's side. That's how they think. And in the opening verses that Steve spoke on a week or two ago, they raise cynical questions about God's love for them. God says, I love, the, I love you, and they say, well, how do you love us? When do you love us? Now, in these verses that we've read today, it's like God begins to turn the tables on them. And he says, what should be questioned is not my love for you, but your love for me. And he gets on their case a bit, and it's quite an interesting exchange. And we're going to learn a bit from it. So these, in these verses, we see a people who acknowledge God is their father. They use that term, but have a poor attitude towards him. And their worship is half-hearted. They're reluctant to make any serious sacrifice for him. 
There's nothing, nothing heartfelt about their response. It's all got a bit burdensome, a bit routine, and a bit passionless. And verse 8 sort of captures the problem because they're offering in their era, in their covenant, they're offering lamb sacrifices for their sins or goats, and they're offering the, the worst animals in their flock. They're offering the blind, the diseased, the ones that won't breed, the ones nobody else wants. They're offering ones they probably kill off anyway. Ones that are no good to them are the ones that are being offered in the temple. Now, actually, that is a serious matter. The law which they're living under, the law they're trying to obey, or should be, repeatedly says that God wants you to check your animals are perfect before you offer them. And although that may be a relative term, perfect, it's basically meaning you give God the best you possibly can. Now, there are good reasons for that, because that reflects that God is truly God and everything comes from his hand and you acknowledge that and you give to God off the top the best, not off the bottom the worst that you don't know what else to do with. And it also shows real gratitude. You genuinely are thankful for what God's done for you and blessed you. There was an additional profound truth that the people would not have understood but was it very important to God. Because these animals, in some ways, kept, were all pointers forward to the true Lamb of God. They didn't really, effectively, remove sin. How could an animal's blood do that? There was a bigger, deeper, more precious sacrifice that God himself would make that would actually deal with sin once and for all. They were looking forward to it. We're looking backwards to it. It's the cross of Jesus Christ. And there, the perfect Lamb of God would die with no blemish, no imperfection. And he had to be perfect. It had to be to be effective because he bore your sin and my sin, not his own sin. Now, they might not have understood that, but for God, that's important. You are spoiling the whole thing. This ridiculous attitude of bringing the most diseased, riddled animal you can. So there's a, something offensive in it to God. Now, you could say, oh, well, they wouldn't understand. Yeah, but they could understand the other things, putting God first, honouring him with the best of the flock, everything comes from him, and just do what he tells you to do. And he tells you to give the best animals with no flaws in them. But they were ignoring all that. And it was therefore offensive to God at a number of levels. And God says in his inimitable style here, in any case, try offering your governor what you offer me. Now that's really coming right down on the ground and saying you've got a Persian governor ruling over you and he demands tax. That's what it's about, tax for the Persian government. The tax will be paid largely in produce like it would have been in those days. You imagine giving your tax man what you're giving me, is what he says. You go to the governor and give him a few blind sheep and see how he feels about it. He will not be happy, in fact, probably would punish them. And, and God's just getting in their face and saying, think about what you're doing. Think about the attitude that reflects. Now, there is hope. That's why the whole book's written. There is hope. This broken relationship with God can be restored. He is their father. God is a God of grace and mercy. Forgiveness is available. But the people need to get, they need it. They need to get a different attitude to their relationship to God in all ways, and as a father particularly. They need to see, look, this is about you treating me as a father then. 
You say I'm a good father, well, behave like it. You know, it's that sort of uh, thrust to what's said here. So let's focus on three little phrases that I want to pick up. Not all of them are in the, in the passage, two of them are. And let's use it to sort of dig in and hopefully learn for ourselves. Let's focus on if I am a father. If I am a father. This is what God says to them. If I am a father. It's a heartfelt challenge from God and it's a challenge which is even more appropriate to all of us who are in the new covenant and follow uh, Jesus and know God as our heavenly father. It's like, right, God's saying, right, if that is true, what does that mean for you? That's the sense. If I am a father. Now, we do rightly relish that. We've done it this morning, and I love the songs, and we rightly sing them. He's a good, good father. But that has an implication. Do we really believe that? Is that what we think and believe? And if it is, what does that mean for me and for how I live and how I behave. Now, in the Old Testament, there is some reference to God as Father. There's one here. We've just read it. But it's, by and large, as like most of the things, a sort of shadow of what we enjoy. I mean, it, essentially, it's corporate. So it's about Israel. Israel, it comes out at the time of Exodus when God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son. Let him go, and things like that. So it's, it's like the nation is seen sort of corporately as the, as the son uh, and uh, God the father. I'm not sure, we don't know, how much there was an intimacy and a personal thing for them to enjoy. Our new covenant is so much better. And that's going to mean we have so much more to get out of this and so much more to reflect back to God. That's what it will mean. It's so much better. And I haven't got time to unpack it all. I wish I had. I'd love to. So I'm just going to give you a lightning flick through, uh, I don't know, through the photo album of three or four brilliant verses which apply to you if you're a Christian. Let's look at quickly John 1, verses 12 and 13. Yet to all who did receive him, this is about Jesus Christ. The hymn is Jesus Christ. And if you're in this room today and you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Saviour, you don't know God as your Father, you can learn from these few verses in the next two or three minutes and you can apply them to your life and you can know him today as your loving Heavenly Father. Let me just say that to you. This is the Word of God. To all who did receive Jesus Christ, to those who believed in his name, so that's the door, that's the way it happens, you put faith in Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born, not of natural descent, or a human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. When you become a Christian, you are born again. That's a Bible term. Born again by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit comes into you and you're born of God. And in your heart comes the Spirit of God with an Abba Father cry. That's incredible. What a privilege. That's way beyond what Malachi would have understood. That is such a privilege. You personally, men, women, whatever your background, whatever your race, you can know God as your Father. You become a child of God through faith in Jesus Christ. John unpacks it again in his uh, letter. Here's 1 John 3, verses 1 and 2. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. What love! And this is what we are. I mean, John can't believe it. After 
30 years, I don't know how long he'd been a Christian, 40, I don't know. He's an old man, I think, so maybe 50, goodness knows what. And, and he says, you know, this is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it didn't know him. Dear friends, and he's sort of like an intimacy. Dear fellow Christians, and I'm saying it to you. Dear friends, now we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we will see him as he is. And it's like, what a secret we've got. Now, it's an open secret. You can join this this morning. If you're not in this family, you come in today. Faith in Jesus. There are billions who are already followers of Jesus, not only down through history, but in the world today. And you can join this wonderful family, but you personally will know God as your father. You'll know him as your heavenly father. It's wonderful, the grace of God. And here's a little example of the personal thing. John 20, now we're back in the gospel. And this is when Jesus rose from the dead and he's met by Mary Magdalene. Now you need to get this. Mary Magdalene is the first person who sees the risen Jesus. She's a woman. So it's not a great thing for, for the first century to have a woman as the first person and test me. It was, you think you've got problems today, ladies. Then it was terribly misogynistic. So that's interesting. She's a woman. But she's not a straightforward woman. She's got a very broken past. There's evidence she might have been a prostitute. She certainly had seven demons cast out of her because the New Testament tells us that. So she'd been a very broken woman who was wonderfully saved and restored through Jesus Christ. She's the first person to meet Jesus. Now let's read it. Jesus, she's holding on in delight because she realizes it's Jesus. Do not hold on to me for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brother's to the other disciples and tell them I am ascending to my father and your father to my God and your God now this is how it happens we come into the relationship with God that Jesus has he's bringing many sons to glory we all become sons ladies as well because we come into Christ's relationship that's a privileged position we're co-heirs with Christ that's incredible joint heirs with Christ we come into his now it's a real thing we have the Holy Spirit in us we become children of God it's a real thing it's not just a, a sort of theological truth up here in the air but the fact is we this phrase is for us Jesus says I go to my father and now he's your father Mary in a way he never would have been before could have been because of what Jesus had done, died and rose, and he will say that to every Mary Magdalene for the last 2,000 years, and every one of you, he says, he's my father, and he's your father. When you put your faith in me and cling to me, like she's doing, and I heal you, restore you, forgive you, he's your father like he's my father. Isn't that wonderful? I think that's, why, that's almost where we ought to stop and worship. But we're not going to, because I want to say a lot more. But we'll get back to worship. Last one of my little snapshots. This is Paul unpacking it for us, as he does in his letters. A bit more theology, if you like. But it's about Jesus. When the set time had fully come, God sent his son, that's Jesus, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive the adoption to sonship. We heard about adoption this morning. Because you are his sons. Now, don't think this is all funny, it's all about men. No, it's about all of us. We come into Christ's sonship. It's about privilege and being the 
joint heirs and all the rest of it. It's, it's very precious. Don't, don't deny it. So he said, we receive the adoptions of sonship. Because you are his sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Do you see? It's the same truth, a bit more unpacked. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out Abba Father. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir. We're joint heirs. We share what Jesus has got. We share his authority. We share his position. It's incredible. We're seated with him in heavenly places. I mean, where do you stop? It's incredible. This is what you have as a Christian. This is your birthright if you have put faith in Jesus and received him as your Lord. It is magnificent. Now, it is important we don't make the common mistake of trying to understand God as a father by looking at earthly fathers. It is an easy thing to do, but I'm not actually going to give it a lot of airtime this morning because I want to stay on the positive. But can I just say, don't do that. Don't think of, well, I've had this problem. I'm sure. Let Jesus heal it. But let's learn about what God is like as a father. He is the example of fatherhood for men on earth. It's not, we look at fathers down here and learn about God. That's a disaster. You look at God and learn what a father should be like. That's, God is the father of fathers. He's the true father. He's the eternal father. He's always been a father because he's always had a son and there's always been a Holy Spirit. That's the Trinity. So he is eternal. He knew, he's a father before there was a creation. So he is the father that we understand and learn from and get true understanding from. He loved us before we loved him. When we were enemies, when we were rebels, he loved us. He sacrificed his most cherished possession for us, his beloved son, Jesus. He has authority, fatherly authority, and it is focused on the good of his children. But what he knows is real good. His goal is not to limit our freedom, but to help us to be fully human, as he made us to be, to be like his son, Jesus, to show the family likeness, to be like him, to be godly, to be little reflections of his fathering heart, to be little duplicates of Jesus walking around. That's his goal. And he's put the DNA in us by his spirit, and then he's got to teach us how to work that DNA out. You are children of God. Live like children of God would be the thrust of much that's written in the New Testament. So this wonderful, wonderful truth is glorious to enjoy. And now we need to get to the challenge. If God is a good, loving, gracious father, how should we respond to him? How do we respond to him? Let's go on to the next phrase. Yeah, right. <laughs> Now, this phrase does not come from the Bible. But unless you've been living in a monastery, it's the sort of phrase you might have heard in our modern Britain. Sorry if you come from another nation. It may be hard to translate. You've got to get the tone. The tone is cynical and slightly rude. Yeah, right, you love me. Okay. It's probably a phrase you might hear from a teenager a little more often than an adult but you can hear adults say it as well. 
And it's the title of Phil Moore's book on Malachi chapter 1. It's his title, which I thought was brilliant, so I pinched it from him. It's a title in his book, Straight to the Heart of the Minor Prophets. Because this sums up the people of God's attitude in Malachi's day. Yeah, right. I have loved you. Yeah, right, you've loved us. (laughs) I am your father. Yeah, right. If you're our father, why... I mean, it's the tone all the way through it. Contradicting, questioning, challenging, grumpy, uncooperative. You know, why are you giving me the worst of your flock? Oh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. We're working our butts off, sacrificing animals. All you can do is moan about the quality. I mean, that is their attitude all the way through the whole book. And I think, going on from Fillmore's very helpful little phrase, that is a very striking feature of their response. If you look at it carefully, every time God speaks, they contradict him or question him. They go, yeah, right. They do. They are behaving like a disgruntled, quarrelsome teenager. So we're going to have a little bit of humour now. Let's just relax for a minute, because we're going to let God speak to us. So... How do we react to God? Let's start with the teenager bit. Do you know any teenagers like this? I'm sure you don't because we're in Winchester and you're all very (laughs) godly people. But I have known a few like this myself, very close to home, and I have observed some in my grandchildren. I'm not going to mention any names. And I have watched at home. I think, yeah, right, okay. If you really love me, you get me a new iPhone. Yeah, right. Yeah, right, if you really care about me, you let me go and my friends whenever I want. You know, and so I have come across that a little bit, just occasionally. Now, I never behave like that myself, of course. Um, but actually, if I think back, I think I wasn't far off that myself. It is a recognised attitude of teenagers to contradict, to be reluctant, grumpy, uncooperative, and just about squeeze by. And if you don't know it, have you heard of Kevin the Teenager? Harry Enfield had a comic character, but it's, if you're under 30, or if you come from another nation, you won't know what I'm talking about, so I'm going to introduce you to Kevin in a moment on the screen. Kevin the Teenager was a, f- a, a, a character in the comedy sketch show of the early 1990s. And uh, the reason it's, I think, quite funny is because it's so sort of accurate to a particular attitude. So we're going to see Kevin cleans the car. And the clip starts after Kevin has agreed, finally, to clean his dad's car for five pounds. Thank you. It was, it was funny, but it's a long time ago. I, I, I commented to Marion, you'd have to put screens in there a lot nowadays. But there was no screens. Nobody had mobile phones much. So, you've got the idea, though, haven't you? There's an attitude problem in Kevin. And actually... Our challenge out of this is, are we going to behave like good children? Are we going to be a bit like Kevin? You know, totally grumpy, uncooperative, had to be squeezed to get anything out of him. Uh, but God, God says, I de- let's get back into our heads. God says, I delight in you. I want you to work with me. I want you to cooperate. I want you to enjoy my relationship with you. The p- problem here, and it's true of Kevin and his parents, it's true of Malachi, is that neither God's not enjoying it and they're not enjoying it. But God says, actually, we can 
work together. We can enjoy things. Now, there is a serious point. They do feel, they in Malachi, disappointed with God. And disappointment's inclined to make you say, yeah, right. It's sort of cynical. Much of the disappointment these people felt was though because they had lost sight of where they would be without God. And that's an important lesson for us. Their eyes were so fixed on their problems and what God hadn't done for them that they failed to think about what God had done for them. And so their whole attitude lacked any gratitude or real faith about what God was going to do. Now that can be the challenge for us. Again, Phil Moore is very helpful. Here's some good advice from Phil from that same book. The next time you feel disappointed with God, take a sheet of paper and draw a line down the middle. On one side, list the blessings God has given you, and on the other side, list the sins, which mean he ought not to have blessed you at all. Then pray with this new perspective. Tell him you are no longer disappointed with his mercy towards you. We all, and I find this challenging myself. I hasten to say I'm not just pushing it on you. I I fully engage with it. I think we all can focus on what God didn't do and not what he has done for you. His incredible mercy, his incredible love. It is like the teenager. They have not got a clue what you're doing for them, which is very frustrating. You know, and, and somehow, even sometimes when you mention it, that you don't get a thank you, you get, yeah, well, I don't want you to do all that. I'd rather do this myself and that. You think, oh, my goodness, you don't understand the half. And, and, and it's like us and God. We can like be like that. We don't understand the half of what he does for us, but we do understand some of it. So let's move on quickly to our last one. Where is the honour due to me, says God. It's part of that little opening sentence. The sobering fact is that the people at Malachi's time actually thought they were okay because they weren't actually worshipping idols. As I told you, they weren't running away from God. They were still going to the temple and worshipping. But they were very severely self-deceived because they thought they could live in a sort of no-man's land of nominal faith and half-hearted worship. But actually... God knew their hearts and their attitudes and that whole approach was offensive to him. Now, let's just think why it's offensive. Don't let's take a knee-jerk think, well, God's just touchy. No, no, no. Here's a verse from Chronicles. Listen. The Lord searches every heart and understands the motives behind the thoughts. Got it? God knows every heart and the motive. So he knows why you're doing what you're doing. That's why it's a bit, it's not like God's just touchy. He knows they don't want to do this. They're fed up with it. They're just doing it formally. They're just doing it perhaps for a bit of superstitious fear. And he's, he's not happy about that. God wants our hearts. He is not satisfied with external religious practice. He never has been, not even in the Old Testament, which is where we are this morning. God has never seen it as just a religious ritual. Just do the right things and you'll get, you know, line your ducks up and I'll bless you. It's the heart. That's why he loved David. David was a mess in some ways, but David had a heart for God. So God is, and that's why it's an insult, because people are forgetting that God knows anyway. 
So let, let, let's say, for example, in a very modern, you know, God loves a cheerful giver. Well, yes, because that's the only sort of giving that makes sense to him, that you give cheerfully and, and because you honour God and put him first. If you're giving grumpily and complaining, God knows it anyway. If you begrudge it, and he knows it's, it's no point. That would be God's approach. No, no, I need your heart. I need it to be sincere. You cannot fool God. You, you know, you, God, that's why... He, hypocrisy really annoys God. He really annoys Jesus when you read the Gospels because he knows it. It's, and it's an insult to assume he doesn't know it. That's the insult. You're treating me as though I don't exist or as though I'm a, a daft old man who doesn't understand what your heart's saying. I'm not. I'm a living God. I made you. I'm transcendent and imminent. I'm up there and I'm down here and I know all about it. I know your heart. Let's read it again. I search every heart, understand the motives behind your thoughts. I, I can forgive you. I will engage with you. Don't get all scared, but get real. That's how we have to be with God. It's not about, oh, he knows all about me. Yes, there's a little bit of fear, but he will love you and forgive you. That's his appeal here in Malachi. Come and be real with me. Don't tell me I'm a father and behave like that. Do you get it? And the punch is for us, and it's rightly so. I take it as well. So as we are sort of getting towards the close, which we are, I want to propose three questions, which I found challenging. I, I, I picked them up in different places as I was reading, preparing this. Three questions which I just want you to think about, just want you to ponder on. I guess you'd need to be a Christian for this to make sense, and you can become one this morning. You can come to know Jesus as your saviour, and your Lord. But assuming you are, and please do that if you want to, and come and talk to us afterwards if you don't fully grasp how to do it. We'd love to just join you in that. It's not about joining this church. It's about knowing Jesus as your saviour, about knowing God as your father. It's wonderful. And many millions and millions enjoy it across the world. But if you are a child of God and are following him, let's just do a little health check on what our relationship with him is like. Now, hopefully, you won't find major problems because when you go to the doctor, we do this for a well-mend clinic as I can go or a health check, which I have. You, you, don't, you hope you're not going to hear bad results. So you don't need, but, you, but if you have got a problem, it's best to pick it up and deal with it. And that's exactly how I want to view this. They're very simple, challenging questions, I hope. Here's the first one. Do I take seriously the idea of my own self-sacrificing for God? Now, we haven't... We haven't looked at this passage, but in Romans 12, verses 1 to 2, it says, once we know God, when we're following God, our whole lives should be a living sacrifice for him. And our, our bodies are living sacrifices. So this question is saying, do we sacrifice? Do we understand that? So I would say evidence that we might have a problem in this area might be things like this. An unwillingness to accept any cost, any effort, any inconvenience in my worship and praise of God. So I make no effort, whether it's coming corporately or on my own, or, you know, I, I, I treat it very casually. Oh, the worship bit, well, it's just a warm up. I'll go and buy my groceries in Sainsbury's and then I'll get in for the word. And, you know, are you aware what that means? <laughs> what you're thinking? I just want you to pause and think. Don't, don't focus on the immediate. You know, oh, the music isn't very good. You know, the animals, that's the animal focus. No, what, who are you doing it for? You know, come on, it's God. Yes. <laughs> he knows your attitude in worship. 
Are you prepared to sacrifice a bit of inconvenience, a bit of embarrassment, a bit of effort? I trust you are, but let me test, challenge you. What about in sharing your faith with others? Are you prepared for any sacrifice, any embarrassment, any awkwardness, any challenge, any people thinking you're a bit odd? Or do you want zero of that? That's quite a low bar, isn't it? Zero. I mean, Jesus has done so much for us. God loves us. What we must be careful of is fearing the opinion of men and women outside or even inside the church more than fearing God's opinion. It's a very common mistake, and I've often made it myself. Just check yourself out. Am I prepared to self-sacrifice something of reputation or awkwardness or something? I don't know anything for God. Or do I just, am I totally focused on people's opinion for me? All right, let me just put up another one. What does it cost me to live as a Christian? What does it cost me to live as a Christian? Now, you may well, as I say, it's a health check. You may not do badly on it. I'm not assuming you will. But think about these sort of areas. What have you given up to be a follower of Jesus? Now, some of you will have done. Do you make sacrifices in your social life? Some of you will in terms of your relationships, in terms of how you handle yourself with purity. I mean, it's a big cost for many. But it sometimes has to be paid. That cost is there. That's real. What have you given up? Do, do you make sacrifice in your social life? Do you make sacrifice in your leisure choices, your career choices, your use of time? And here's another important part of it, which I challenge myself with, because I think it's important. Pause and think, why do I do this? And remember, it's for God, not for the church, not to be a good boy or girl, not because I have to. It needs, it's a bit like the giving. Perhaps that's an area of sacrifice. Do you sacrifice by generously giving? And if you do, do you do it with cheerfulness and joy? Because it's for your loving Heavenly Father. It's only Him that matters. Don't do it for Hope Church, do it for Him. What's the point in doing it for one another scruffy? individual like me, like you, another scraggy old thing. No, no, you do it for him. That's, and, and you need to sometimes recalibrate. Why do I make this out? Why does it cost me this? Why don't I sleep around? Why don't I take drugs? Why don't I get drunk? Why don't I fiddle the books? Why don't, why don't I do stuff that other people do? Well, there is a cost, but there's a joy when you know why you do it. Amen? Amen. So it's a good chance to rediscover the joy. And then lastly... How does my attitude to God's people, the church, reflect on my honour and respect for God? Do I really love God's people? He does. They're his children. He loves them. Make sure we do. Am I able to, again, I guess it's sacrifice, overcome some of my own prejudices and preferences? It's a bit hard to say. Prejudices and preferences. Am I able to overcome them to just show love and acceptance to Christian brothers and sisters who I have no natural affinity with? Or do I just engage? Well, like, if I was in the world, I'd go with those sort of people, and when I'm in the church, I go with those sort of people. But no, 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 no. It's different in the church. <laughs> We're all the family of God, and some of God's children are very different from you. We're a funny old bunch, all of us, and, and we have to learn to love one another because we love our Heavenly Father. He's accepted us. We accept each other. It's a very important principle. And my eyes are on God. 
and I'm prepared to serve him, and that will mean serve others. That's how it works out. So if God is a father, are we really honouring him with our love and respect and care for him and for those he loves and cares for? He loves the lost. He loves the church. And we just need to make sure our lives are worshipful lives. The word worship means worthship. I looked it up to remind myself that I've not made this up from years ago. I looked it up in the dictionary. It means worship, worthiness, this one, acknowledgement of worth. So worship means we acknowledge the worth of what we're worshipping. It's a big one, isn't it, in God, that our worship acknowledges his worth. We're going to end with the time of worship. So if you could come up, please, Mark, and the band. What we're going to do is just state to him how we love him. We're not going to get, I want you to be thoughtful. That's why I've asked you the questions. I want you to be thoughtful. But the thoughtfulness needs to be worked out. And, and some of it will just be reminding yourself why you do the stuff you do. Why do you give you... I mean, people serve brilliantly, for example, in this church. I know that. But remember, do it with joy because you do it for your Heavenly Father. Fine, firstly, of course you practically do it for people because they're the ones that receive the benefit of your service. But it's given to Him first and foremost, isn't it? Well, I want you to enjoy it, so reminding you of that, all right? We do it for Him. Let's remind ourselves, let's recalibrate our hearts this morning. He is our good, good heavenly father and we love him.